0: Hi, my name's Bruce Peterson, and this is Uncommon.
1: Uncommon is a production focused on the why of business, media, and marketing. It's made by my team at Nural, a digital agency for challenger brands and talent. To learn more, just visit nural.com. That's neurall dot com. All right, uh, my guest this week. Is Bruce Peterson, founder and executive chairman of Grande Experiences. Thanks for coming in. Um, I'm going to ask you first, seeing as I'm heading to Europe in about 12 days, um, when was the last time you were back in Rome? <laughs> about
0: um, 11 days ago. Really? You're <laughs> yeah. kidding. No, I was um, I was back over in Europe for about five weeks um, okay. and just got back um, yeah, 10, 11 days ago.
1: So did you do the... Um the classic it Italian holiday, perfect time of year to be going as well.
0: Yeah, look, we we probably tend to do the um the less classical these days. Um, having a business over there and having lived there for a year, we love to visit, but we love to go somewhere different and new. So this year I spent um quite a bit of time in the very very south of Puglia. Um, right. Yeah, about as far far south as you could go.
1: Okay. Very yeah. nice. And when you stay in Rome, normally, because I know, mm-hmm. um, pretty sure you guys own that museum now, the private yep. museum, which we'll get onto later. Which, because I'm a, I love Rome. Always mm-hmm. stay around Villa Borghese. Yep. What's, what's sort of like your go-to area to stay?
0: Yeah, well, our museum's in Piazza del Popolo, and that's yeah. that's you know arguably my favourite place of Rome as well. It's a it's a beautiful people's you know square. And it's at the foot of Borghese, as you know, and it's yeah. um part of a walk that I like to do at early hours before Rome wakes up. But um yeah, we tend to stay around, you know, via Babuino or the okay. top of the corso there. And I've got a couple of choice apartments that I like to stay in um in that area.
1: Yeah. I love Rome. It's always um I don't know, it's always funny how people because Rome is such it's like a mega opolis for tourists, how much you get pulled into the very, very centre of Rome. For most people, at least, and you miss things like like so many people I know who've been to Rome twice, don't know what Villa Borghese is. And I'm yeah. like, what? Yeah, it's crazy.
0: I think um when I first went to Rome as a backpacker, um and you had those old McDonald's maps out that yeah, yeah, showed yeah. the toilets on there and yeah. things like that, but I remember navigating myself around Rome. Um, and it took all day, and you were dead tired on your feet. Whereas now I can go out to dinner, and if I've got my wife with me or daughter at the end of dinner, we can just say, right, let's just walk dinner off and we'll do a tour of all the the main sites. So we can hit Spanish Steps, Trevi Fountain, Pantheon, um, Piazza Navona and then back to Piazza del Popolo in like an hour. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's the way to do Rome, I reckon, is less of the touristy going to, like, you know, you have to go to this museum, have to go inside the Colosseum and all that. I think just, I don't know, letting yourself absorb it. Like oh, thinking about what life would have been like a thousand years ago—it's pretty wild.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I'm reading at the moment about the history of Rome, but the buildings there because they've got so much history within the buildings, and you know, you just don't know what's behind the closed closed doors all the time in Rome. You're walking past something that just has a facade, but all everything happens behind or it mm-hmm. happens under, and it has so many secrets. Um, That we'll never know about. And I'm just fascinated to try and unlock a few of them.
1: Yeah. Tell me, what is your, what do you reckon is your earliest memory?
0: Wow. Um, Earliest memory was being um, picked up by a truck driver on Majura Avenue in Canberra, where I was born as about a two, two and a half year old, as I was scooting up the main road on my little tricycle tractor um thing i'd I'd escaped out and i was uh i was joining the big boys on the main road
1: right so when you say (laughs) he picked you up like he literally grabbed you and said you're going back home he pulled
0: over and uh yeah i just have memories of of um being sort of knocked on the door and walked in and is this your son (laughs) (laughs) my mum was horrified
1: (laughs) yeah right what did you what did your parents do for work growing up
0: yeah look my father um he was a um a Commonwealth driver, so he, he was the driver of Gough Whitlam when Gough Whitlam was prime minister. Wow. Um, yeah, he drove Princess Di and Prince Charles and um, Joe Biockley Peterson. There's a blast from the yeah, past yeah. and lots of lots of stories um there. Um, and my mother, um, yeah, she had a, a varied career of um nursing uh, through to medical reception. Um, but in the earlier days, you know, she was in the air force um just yeah. you know post war and
1: mm. yeah Commonwealth drivers what the stories and things that they would hear that would be f- that'd be a brilliant podcast <laughs> <laughs>
0: if you could get the old guys yeah <laughs> because they always used to sit around the rex hotel and drink all day whilst parliament was sitting really? and then they'd disperse and go and pick up all the uh all the uh the ministers and i'm sure most of them were uh, were half
1: cut by the time <laughs> they picked up the uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing oh my god yeah i've Uh, It just reminds me of, um, there was one of my favorite TV shows in a while on the ABC was called, uh, uh, rake or the rake. And it's about like, um, a guy who's a lawyer and he builds himself up all the way into parliament and then somehow becomes a chief justice. And it's just like, he's an absolute, like he's, you know, he's doing heroin or (laughs) crack cocaine and so he's just a mess. Yeah. And, uh. His Commonwealth driver is hilarious. Like just the yeah. things that he does, it's yeah. brilliant. Um, what's the most memorable thing or lesson do you reckon that your parents have told you?
0: Mm, I think, I think from my mum, <clears throat> the big one that sits is, you know, being responsible for your own actions. Okay, um, you know that's a that's a big one. I think in particular, I've got you know kids now. But I'm also looking at a generation that I think wants to absolve themselves of responsibility quite a bit and push it on to, to somewhere else. Having said that, on the flip side of that, I think they're taking on far more responsibility on bigger and broader issues, um, you know, around the climate change and, you know, around topics that are really, really important to them at the moment of diversity and and the like. Um, you know, how they go about it might be, you know, strange for us of a different generation or um, alike, but but responsibility, and I think we saw it through COVID, how a government dictated what we did, and how we should do it. Yet, really, you want people to take responsibility for themselves,
1: mm.
0: and so taking responsibility for their own health, for example, as a business owner or a company owner, do I need to mandate that you wear a mask in the office to protect? other people and yourselves, or should you have that personal responsibility to say, hey, I'm vulnerable. I should take that responsibility on myself to protect myself.
1: Mm. And how did your mum sort of impart that on you? Like what was the way that she said it or tried to emphasize it, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think we were allowed to make mistakes. Right. I'm not sure we allow our kids to make anywhere near the same mistakes as we made. Yeah. Uh, We don't allow them to take the risks like we used to take. But then it was always well that's the consequence of your actions, right, so you own it, so if you want to go out and um and, and do something dangerous and fall out of the tree and break your arm well you know that that's part of the responsibility of doing something that's a little risky, mm. but we were allowed to do all that we were allowed to explore you know people of my age and generation were out on the streets because we didn't have anything else to occupy ourselves, so we were out playing the whole time. And with that, you get into a bit of trouble and you do things and you push the boundaries and you work out where things are, but it always comes back to it's not someone else's fault. I'm, I'm not blaming my mother for allowing me to go out and play on the streets, mm. right? The responsibility comes back to me of what I'm doing when I'm out on the So on over the time,
1: as a generation, <clears throat> it sort of sounds like if – so baby boomers would take a risk on things, and it could be any topic. And over time, as a group, you guys, whether socially or um, maybe legislatively, even let's say, taking the example of COVID, have made it so that this next, let's say that would you say the next generation is Gen Z or millennials? Oh, look, I'll probably because not your that. your daughter's sort of be team. that they're
0: more millennial, Z. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, you know, my kids. Um, but there's, there are huge differences, but that's normal and natural. I think the one thing that I keep trying to say to my kids is don't try and impose your values of today on the values of yesterday. They're different eras, and you shouldn't try and compare, nor should you go back in retrospect. You know, you know, deal with what's today, and it's an age-old argument even in sport. You know, who's the better player? Someone that played... You know, Lee Matthews in the seventies, you know, early eighties, or, you know, Gary Ablett playing in the two thousand twenties. You can't compare across because they 'cause they're they're playing different games, mm. um, even though it's the same, but uh you know, through different things. And I think it's I think it's the same with with where we're at in society is you know, we've got disparity and there's always been disparity, but it's quite a big gap now between the young ones and the older ones in their in their thinking. And yeah. the younger ones are trying to shut down the old ones (laughs) because I don't appreciate the values that a lot of the older generation carry.
1: The interesting thing about that will be in the next few years, I I just listened to a podcast this morning. Um, I think the baby boomer generation is sort of, um, what do they call it? Like the wealthiest generation ever. It's going to be fascinating to see what the impact of, um, they're saying it's going to be the biggest wealth transfer ever mm-hmm. in history. And what will that do? You know, of the percentage of that wealth, what portion gets given away because that becomes a bigger trend? And then what portion is handed down to a generation that the the difference between the haves and the haves nots are bigger, but then all of a sudden they're lumped with mm. a bunch of money because their parents were yep. asset rich but maybe yep. income poor. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be very interesting. It's a fascinating time right now. I mean, we're speaking now in August. Nancy Pelosi's just visited Taiwan. Ukraine's going on. Ah, uh, the pod, uh, for me it's big because the podcast I was listening to this morning was about that, about how they one of the people in particular believes that we're going through a um one believes we're going through a decoupling with places like China and Russia, and the other believes that. We're going to a system that is less uh, global in terms of trade, which I found really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll find out in the next yeah. three years.
0: Where well, you know, my business is a global business. You know, until yeah. we opened the loom here in Melbourne, we were pretty much ninety nine percent of our income overseas, and really? so I've lived it for the last fifteen years and and have seen this seen this trend and almost been arguing for it. You know, five five six seven years ago. Because we were getting way too close and dependent on others, and not at enough independence ourselves on some key essential things. So, like anything, if you put all your eggs in one basket, and then that basket, you know, gets taken away or gets a hole in it, or or uh, you know, crumbles, well, you're in a risk position. And I think Australia had worked itself into a bit of a risk position with its reliance, in particular, on on China, um, you know, for essentially the main exports that we have you know what's in our ground, education and tourism, hmm. and all of those sort of dried up pretty quickly
1: yeah, and dirt essentially mining yeah relying on those it's a it's a it's a problem i i wonder I wondered for a while based off this talk that I was listening to like <sighs> We're, we're going to become less reliant on the US as well. That's going to be like a big trend as they become a little bit more insular. They're moving away from the idea of having to protect everyone. They're they're more much more focused on their own internal policy and you can see mm-hmm. that in their politics. That being said, they're still obviously the global superpower, but does that mean that Australia – I feel like I've seen a mental shift in Australians due to COVID and like maybe since 2019 – this stuff with china like our identity is changing you see things like the republican debate come up mm. more like do we go for a big australia does the population double in the next 20 years and does that change us it's very interesting yeah
0: it is and i think there's a there's another phenomena in there that perhaps hasn't been taken into account is um this generation is uh, and, and our next our next leaders Um, by and large have much more of a moral compass and they'd like to combine capitalism with, you know, that moral compass. But it's interesting because the U.S. is on the nose as much as China's on the nose. You know, there's a real struggle here with the safety in the U.S., you know, the gun laws, you know, the abortion laws, um, you know, the damage Donald Trump's done to, you know, the brand of the US, it's not that great appeal like it was perhaps to the generations before. Yeah, yeah. Um, So they're sort of saying, well, okay, if I'm not going to do business in or with the US, well, so be it because I don't really resonate with them anyway. Yeah. And, of course, China's, you know, been very much the same with human rights and and some of the rhetoric that's been coming out there. So I think things like that will lead Australia – a little bit more insular as well yeah
1: um make us think about doing stuff more locally or expanding more locally. because that you're right that's always been a thing it's like you start a company you get big what do you do yeah go to the u.s or china yeah that's a good <laughs> point actually i i've said i've been saying this to our staff and a few other friends like the last year yeah the, the u.s i don't know i think australia is so good this country is so bloody good like you know these these issues they have with gun laws. We don't have it. Um, people say, "Oh, well, you can't do you can't have healthcare and be a world superpower." But like, if you look at it, we spend the same percentage of GDP on defense. Does it make sense? They spend more on health, and they got a worse system. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wonder the next few decades does this become like a a real growth period for us? Do you get more Americans coming over? I've noticed there's a trend like just being focused on that area of like TikTok and yep. the Gen Z generation. I noticed that more and more of Americans coming over here as skilled labor and being like, this is great. This is amazing. Like, I'm going to yep. stay here. Yeah, there's a, it's an interesting
0: one. Because Australians are pretty well traveled by and large, we get to see what's happening around the world, which can reaffirm actually how good it is back in Australia. Yeah. I think we need a little bit more um, reaffirmation amongst ourselves because Australians get down on Australia a bit too easily and a bit too, yeah. um, through the media in particular. You know, we, tend, we tend to be quite negative about many, many aspects of, of life in Australia, but it's incomparable. You know, Having lived overseas, it's difficult to live in a lot of other countries country. around the world yeah you know, it's easy in australia when it comes to um freedom movement education healthcare you know, all the essential things not for everybody of course but it's a broad for generalization the for yeah. the majority this is a pretty easy country to live in compared to others around the world
1: yeah class movement in australia is very easy yep. in comparison to most western countries yeah and it's sort of uh, i guess this is the interesting thing for you cuz you've lived at You've lived overseas as you were initially launching the business. I mean, um, you said to me earlier, I'm not on social media. And you can tell when you go on LinkedIn because it's, you know, it's, uh, you've got the board membership at Top Shelf International Holdings, you've got uh, Grande Experiences in the Loom. And there's obviously a gap there for the bloke who studied PE, geography, and environmental science. But I, I can pick up from when you went to go do the Da Vinci exp- exhibition. But tell me before that, mm-hmm. that 86 to sort of 05 period, what were you doing with yourself?
0: <laughs> um, being a chameleon, I think. Um, look, in many ways, trying my hand at many different things. Um, mm. I started out life as a teacher, um, okay. and that was great for a period of time. I you was know, a phys ed teacher, um, but I quickly, I suppose, tired of that. I couldn't see really much of a future for myself in that it's an honorable profession and and i've got mates who are still teaching and um you know for those that are good at it and thrive in it and love it great but it wasn't for me mm. so <clears throat> i hopped out of there into the pharmaceutical industry so i used my physiology background and um i suppose communication background and moved in and, and worked for a company called merck sharp and dome okay or uh, or merck in the, as their u.s parent company and um Look, the time I was there, nothing to do with me, of course. They were Fortune 500, number one company for five years in a row. So I was thrown this tremendous amount of um, personal development and training, and um, I learned a huge amount. But I also was coming from this education bubble. I'd been a student, then I'd gone to university as a... You know, uh, basically doing a teaching degree and then went and taught. So you you live in this artificial bubble a little bit as a teacher when it comes to the commercial world. So Merck provided a stepping stone, but I I resonated. Um, sorry, I didn't resonate with working for a multinational. In fact, I hated it. Um, mm. And so I I took time out for a year and I travelled as a a person of um twenty five, so I I finished a long term relationship, sold a house and threw the job in and took off overseas for twelve months to go and find myself. And I hit about thirty-six countries, I think, in that twelve months and everywhere from South America, you know, through to Europe into into Asia and and back home. And while I won't say I went and found myself, I certainly realized that I wanted to do something a little bit extraordinary with my with my life um, and, and not just float along and be comfortable with what life threw at me. I wanted to actually try and dictate my life a little bit more. Mm. Um, and so I worked out a couple of the blocks and barriers whilst I was away and I decided I, I would start my own business. I didn't know what it was in when I got back. And, um, and then I, 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 you know, I moved in and started a sales and marketing company. Um, and Introduced large format digital printing into Australia it was right at the forefront of that. So interesting. Did the big switcheroo for most corporate companies from photographic process to digital process in a in a printing.
1: So were you selling machines to like corporates, or were you?
0: No, actually up, doing the I'd printing. I'd hooked up with a couple of guys who had the technology, and they were, if you like, selling back into the trade and to the agencies. Okay. And I just took the approach, why go to the through the middleman? Just go direct to the end client. So I was bypassing the ad agencies and the and the other print companies and those that thought they had a mortgage on the end on the end client. And within twelve months I think I'd build up about two hundred and eighty corporate clients. Wow. Um direct, you know, in into just supplying them direct with print. Everyone from L'Oreal to Mercedes to the new Westfield centers to um you know agricultural companies, you know, with You probably know
1: my dad. So, uh, he's a printer, complete color printing based okay. in Melbourne. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he would have done some sort of work yeah, for, okay. for all that, all those sort of companies yeah. back in the day, yeah. but he's one of the few that are, one of the few independents that are left. Yeah. It's amazing okay. what has happened to that industry. Yeah. like printing in general.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, I was, I was only in it for a two, three year, three, four year period. Three years, um, it wasn't for me long term, but it was a great stepping stone, and, and I earned quite well out of it to then enable me to you know to keep
1: moving. So, and did you do anything before this trip? To, anything else before that trip to uh, Rome? You know, just right? just recently. No, no with, the, with the with the printing.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah, look, I look, I yeah, I I started up a couple of other businesses. I had a high end travel business which. Sort of internal motto was, if you could find it in a brochure we didn 't offer it um, so I was setting up these you know experiences for um, very high will, you know net worth oh, individuals overseas russians and americans and and alike on on very bespoke trips and tours. Um, the problem for that was with me was um it was i wasn't suited to dealing with that type of clientele on a day-to-day basis so i had to employ people as a buffer <laughs> yeah. um, be, between me and it it was great creating the experiences but then the actual reality of of uh working with very demanding people to fulfill them um sort of took the shine off it for me so i sold that business and and um and then i was in a a a, a partnership business in high performance teams and leaders which is going back to a lot of my roots of of the phys ed and sporting days in how to build a, a high-performing team and and how to how to help the transition from being a manager to an emerging leader to a leader. And uh, that was great. And it was through that um, relationship that was introduced to um, Hass Dalal. And Hass is the ex-chairman of SBS and CEO of the Australian Multicultural Foundation. He asked me to get involved to assist a group of Italian artisans who wanted to bring... Um, an exhibition of Leonardo's machines to Australia, yeah. Leonardo da Vinci's machines. And um, so I got involved with that and saw a big opportunity and um, organised to bring it down here to Waterfront City when the Docklands was just opening up. And we put it on uh, down there and um, it did very, very well. I think we had about 118,000 visitors. And
1: I remember going to it. Oh, it did you? Fascinating. Okay. About, yeah.
0: The so it was fascinating, but I looked at it from a critical eye and thought, wow, this could be so much better, mm. um, and it's only telling part of a story of a very, very fascinating individual, um, and I didn't think the Italians that I were working with were behind it. I mm. thought they'd ripped it off from somewhere, um, and so I went to Italy to to sort of find out a little bit more about it, and um, yeah, sure enough, I I, I found the you know, person behind it all. And we um, you know, started to form a relationship and I gave him a vision that I wanted to build the largest, most comprehensive exhibition on Leonardo da Vinci that had been done, because it hadn't really been done. Mm. There was lots of small exhibitions and he hadn't left a lot of original artifacts behind, you know, that have have survived five hundred odd years. Um so every exhibition that gets put on by someone only contains a small amount of artefacts and that doesn't really make a full story or the complete story of Leonardo. So I wanted to, to augment that and create something that told that story. So um, long and short of it, I had to go to Italy with my family to live for a year, which was um, not too hard to take. Um, and so we did that. We started off living in Rome, but then I had three young children at you know, six, five, and three, and I think they I would have lost one of them pretty quickly in the Rome traffic. You know, Australian kids like to play outside and uh, Rome's not very conducive to having kids uh, in, the, in the heart of Rome. So I end up moving out into Umbria where I was between Florence and Rome and, and, you know, the family had a great property to, you know, to live on and I was able to transit between the two. Gosh, right. And so I lived there for a year to develop that experience.
1: Yeah. So it's because it's, I've read... Um... God, who wrote his uh, who his biography? He did the Jobs biography as well. Isaacson, Isaacson, yeah, yeah. brilliant um, biography. It's it's really interesting to learn about his early life and just the world of that time time as well. It is fascinating. Yeah. Um, was it the, was it the Medici uh, family as well that commissioned a lot of his work and Sforzes
0: in Milan? Yes, yeah. so mostly the Sforzes, but. Um, yeah, most of his work that we know, the inventions and like, came through from his time in Milan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Look, he was anointed the master artist from a very, very young age, but his his curiosity um, stopped him from finishing art because he was trying to be perfect in the art. He was really, he was almost painting like a photographer. Hmm. Well, there was nothing abstract about it. it. Was really trying to recreate perfect detail. Yeah, but to a, create really... perfect detail, he actually had to understand physics and, and, and biomechanics and human body more, et cetera. So it led him down this path of knowledge. The very, very interesting thing about Leonardo, which most people don't know, and this is why I got fascinated and, and wanted to tell the story, because you're talking about four of the biggest brands in the cultural world with the Mona Lisa, the Last Supper, you know, his, his self-portrait, and the Vitruvian Man. And most people recognize those things, but prior to the exhibition that we created and you know, the masses of people had gone through, most people still don't understand much about Leonardo. Mm. But he was you know, he was born illegitimate, which means he wasn't yeah. afforded an education. You know, his father was a notary, so his father taught him a lot of what he knew, and then he was self-taught. So he was questioning everything that the church was teaching all the scholars at the time. And he was proving or disproving it through experimentation. And he had, if you like, open slather because there was so much false information out there at the time that he was able to disprove many things or go a step further. And so he got involved in everything from astronomy astronomy, to geology to cutting up cadavers to understand how the heart worked. You know, he's the first to understand how the eye refracts light. You know, it was all these amazing new discoveries that he made but he was supposed to be an artist and so he he, he couldn't make money because he was too busy doing the experiments to put back into his art, but he wasn't completing enough art to sell. Hmm. In fact, Michelangelo sold more in one sculpture than Leonardo earned in his entire life, yet right. they were sort of arch rival contemporaries at the, uh, at the same time. So he sold his services to the Sforza family in Milan as a military strategist, and that's when he was allowed to go and do all his engineering um you know studies that he did. but it was very challenging for him because he was a pacifist, vegetarian six foot six you know gay left handed thought very differently, so in those times, you were socially very very different yeah um but uh you know he's left behind. A massive legacy um, for those that get involved in Leonardo, because he becomes he's he's a muse for so many CEOs around the world. It's it's incredible,
1: and sort of really not created, but he was one of the chief entrepreneurs of the Renaissance, right? You know, like it was really born out of people like him. It's really oh, fascinating.
0: without without a doubt. I mean, he yeah. You know, we 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 think of Leonardo da Vinci, you know, as the as the pinnacle of that of that time because the two things that were most important to these big families at the time, the Medici's and the Sforza's and the like, were military might and power and Social art. Capital,
1: art, yeah. Yeah. So how many years, because mm-hmm. the business was launched in 2005, you, the well, the business today was obviously very different to what it was in 05. So mm-hmm. you got touring experiences, the loom, obviously, and you now own uh, Museo di Leonardo da Vinci. Um, in 2009, I think it was this combination of seeing a project projection based environment in France, but also just picking up on things like your kids being bored at museums along the way. How many years was it until you got away from just doing the museum to starting to branch out into other areas like the touring experiences and coming up with the original stories like Van Gogh and so forth?
0: So we started life back in 2006, you know, 2005, 2006, yeah. um, as a artifact-based exhibition company. Mm. So we were tating, taking original artifacts and creating artifacts. So with Leonardo was really taking his drawings and bringing them to life from his codices. but we created a, a huge exhibition over 1, 000, 1500, square meters. Mm. and then we toured that. So we would license gotcha. that to museums and galleries and science centres around the world, and that was so popular. We built a second one, so it became a replica, replicable um, experience for us. Um, and we have five of those um, actually, and still, still going now. Yeah. Obviously, not the same as back then. We, we, you know, there are a living beast, shall we say, where you're continually upgrading and improving and and changing. But you're absolutely right. The, the traditional museum experience um, was highlighted to me living over in Italy, how complacent it was and how yeah. underwhelming it was for many visitors. Yeah. It was almost like there were a lot of people, not all, of course, but a lot of people, oh, I need to like this because I should like this, but I really yeah, don't like this. <laughs> my friend
1: said, I have to go here. Yeah. Yes. And no more
0: than the Louvre. The Louvre was actually an inspiration and a lot of people really disagree with me here and that's fine. But look, the Louvre gets ten million visitors a year and nine hundred and ninety-nine um you know, or nine million, nine hundred and ninety-nine thousand of them run straight up the second floor, straight into the room See where the, the Mona, Mona Lisa, Lisa is and go, yeah. Well shit, it's it's way over there in the distance. It's so it. small, yeah. it's behind two pieces of bulletproof proof glass. And the Louvre, which really makes most of its finances off that piece of art, and if you go down the merchandise store, ninety-seven percent of it's got Mona Lisa on the front cover. Um, you know, they so. give you a plaque, La Gioconda, fifteen oh three to fifteen oh six, Leonardo da Vinci. And that's it. So people go, hang on, I've just travelled halfway, well, all the way around the world, or halfway around the world. When I here, how underwhelming is that? Mm. I can't get close to it. I don't see it, and she's ugly. But they don't understand anything. And that's the key. If you don't understand the story behind something, you will never appreciate it. And the Louvre doesn't give people that story. They have artifacts, more than they can display. Yeah, most of them are still down the vault underneath, but it's lacking that ability to tell the story to the people, to make a connection on why Mona Lisa is so um, so wonderful, why she is the epitome of the of the best piece of art, arguably, that's ever been created. And until you delve into that, it's very hard to make that connection.
1: Yeah. And that's essentially where you started to become a content producer. You started to build original IP.
0: Yeah. Well, we're looking at how to, quite often, it's how to do something better than it's being done at at that particular time. Mm. So when we moved ourselves into multimedia, that was a direct consequence. It took us two years to work out how to develop that I saw the concept in in Le Beau in in Provence, in, in France, in an old limestone quarry, but to then be able to take that, take that out on the road and tour it around the world. no one had ever done that before. Mm. And it took us two years to actually work out how to create a large, you know, multi-projection, multi-sound, um, projection-based you know platform and system to tour that you could set up in seven days. Um, travel in two 40-foot containers and then leave it in situ overseas for three, four months and come back and pack it up and move it to the next place without physically having to be there and operate it every single
1: day. And those two years, when, talk to me as an entrepreneur, what was that time like in terms of getting the approval from venues like did did you do it in a way from a business strategy in that you said, hey, I'm the guy that's operated this museum. We've already tested this format in the museum in little ways. I've got this concept. Let me bring it to you. And they often what came back to you with, yep, we'll do it, or no, you just gotta pay a venue hire and it's on you and you're a promoter essentially. Yeah, sure. Yeah, what was that like? Yeah, look, we um I took a very different
0: approach to everything that had been done beforehand because I didn't come from the arts world um, and I didn't come from um, the world of creating exhibitions within a museum that would then loan them or license them to another museum. I was one of three companies in the world that were sitting outside that infrastructure. There was ourselves. There was a company called Premier Exhibitions, which now no longer that did the Titanic exhibition, which came here to Melbourne. right and there was another company called um Body Worlds which did the human plastinated bodies and we would oh, just yeah, we yeah, would yeah. follow each other everywhere yeah um and often we would go in first because we were um probably less expensive less risk but had the bigger brand and attracted a lot more sponsorship because it had a much bigger appeal leonardo to sponsors and others than dead bodies did and um <laughs> yeah the the, uh, the titanic so yeah we the arguably looking back, one of the biggest challenges we had was what is an Australian company, an Australian person doing with an Italian brand that's second only to God, and how's that connection made? Mm. But it was made through the deep roots of connection that I had in Italy and drawing on those because we had a credibility thing to hop over initially. Yeah. You know. You did, and yeah. Australia's really bad for it. Really bad for it. We could not get acceptance here in Australia until we'd been, you know, ten, fifteen years in existence overseas because Australians yeah. don't accept Australians very well, you know, on the uh, in terms of punching a, a, at a world class, you know, um level. If I had I, promoted ourselves as an
1: Italian company or a French company, it'd be totally different here. I, I've said that I said that to my wife a lot, uh Lauren, who you just met and you know, the best experiences we've ever had. I thought the loom was the only one in Melbourne, by the way, that is to this day, I think since 2012, for me, matched anything we've experienced in Europe. And that's a real testament to what you guys have done with it. And for me, it was realizing things like at Bilbao. Um, God, uh, I can't remember the artist's name, but there was a, I guess, you could call him a sort of modernist style painter, British guy often does landscapes and the way that was just a wing of Bill Bauer. And it was multimedia. It was like, you know, artifacts plus him doing an interview plus going into it. And I thought like, wow, this is just unreal. But also this was only one component of many within this entire museum. So, um, yeah, it was, it was super, super impressive, but also it just goes to show we really lack that stuff here. And I think that's why the looms perform so well. It's just- It's quality. Yeah. Um,
0: Melbourne, Melbourne and Australia kids itself a little bit about where we punch on the cultural stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wouldn't find too many other cities around the world of the size of Melbourne lacking so many cultural facilities. Yeah. Yeah, we we are dominated by a few. Um but we certainly don't have many, but a city of this size somewhere else around the world might have 90 or 100 different museums, galleries, institutions and and of size. Yeah, we mm. we just don't we haven't invested in the infrastructure here
1: in Melbourne. Also probably because they have the volume of visitors. That's the big thing for me is like I look at something like Bilbao and Rome. There'd be more people going there every year than in Melbourne, right? Yeah,
0: see, I'd almost argue back the other way a little bit in terms of- um,
1: Building they'll come?
0: A, a little bit. I mean, Bilbao people go because of the, the fantastic building it's true. of the Guggenheim there, and, 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 and it's captured people's imagination. But you know, they've had the foresight to invest in that and understand that that investment is going to pay dividends for that city for years and years and years and years, and years to come. Where's that vision in Melbourne? We really struggled. You know, we didn't get any support You know, or very little support to bring the loom and put it on in Melbourne. Mm. And because Melbourne's very concentrated on short-term events and we're set up to put a lot of money behind short-term events with the way Visit Victoria operates and how we bring in the soccer games and the basketball games and the Bledisloe Cups and the Grand Prix and that, but they're short-term short activation events, and the city's been built on that, and we do it as well as anybody around the world.
1: Yeah.
0: But when it comes to actually building, the looms are permanent digital art gallery here in Melbourne. I'll put it back to you. What was the last cultural institution of significance built in Melbourne? The NGV. I'll help you out. You're going back to ACME in 2000. Oh, wow. So what have we done for the last 20 years in this area? Yeah. Not a lot. We've concentrated and kept it all within the NGVs and the Melbourne museums and the ACMES because they're owned by the government. That's where the government funds its money. But it doesn't actually move beyond that to help build infrastructure outside of that.
1: Outside of those little domains. Yeah. Yep. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. So how do you go about... Like, Okay, that that was... When it comes to experience design, I feel like we've touched a lot of things. Um, You know, you mentioned before the story. uh, You mentioned about it's got to be cost-efficient from freight and production. You've got to be able to put it away for three months, I think you said. Um, Be able to have a good brand. Um, How do you go about selection of locations? That was an interesting thing to me in that – your exhibitions are often a large in size. the brand we mentioned before must be affordable to license the IP if you're having to mm-hmm. um, and again, low production costs it's quite a unique combination. How do you go because is that what you I would assume that's what your job is today is finding those next things right how do you go through that yeah process? it's a, look
0: it's a combination of things you've got in in my industry you've got Everything from concept through to creation of the experience itself. So creating the you know the, the content, the IP, the asset. But then when you've, once you've got that, you've then got to distribute it. And that brings in another equation of when the world is your market, you'd be kidding yourself if you thought that you knew everything around the world. So you rely on local partners a lot. So that's where we would, yeah. You know, we don't self-promote what we do overseas. We, right. we own and promote the loom here in Melbourne because we can understand this market. And we're here, and, but it would be you know, um, very foolish of me to think that I could go to Berlin and open up an experience there ourselves and own it, run it, and market it because I've got no idea how the Berlin market operates from a marketing perspective nor where the right building is in the right part of town. And I learned this very early on. I, I did a an exhibition in San Francisco and we were just simply on the wrong side of the street. If we had been on the other side of the street, everyone told me it would have been a, a smash success. But because we were on the other side of the street, we were past the threshold where that that you know, a f- Foot traffic would go. Demographic of San Francisco that would come to our experience would not step over that side of the street. Wow. And in fact, the day before we opened, there was a murder at our front door. Jesus. Um and it and that's that's a rookie mistake, you know, in in terms of not understanding the you know the the, the mechanics of a city. Um yeah, you know, we also have things like, you know, here in Australia, if we were to put um if we would have put Leonardo or or French Impressionists or, or, or Vincent van Gogh or like in a shopping centre, it has a connotation with that. Mm. But in large sections of the world, that's exactly where it goes and where you want it to go because that's where the people are comfortable to go to experience um, that. So again, very different in different parts of the world. But mm. we do, we always have a challenge with venues because we're looking for large venues. We need high ceiling heights. We need large expansive you know, open plans and you want them in, you know, great locations in a in a city. Well, most cities can't offer that. Mm. Um, so you're then weighing up smaller venues in the right location versus larger venues in not so good a location. Yeah. And that's where you've really got to test the market as to how much of a destination what you have become, so it doesn't matter so much versus yeah, actually being in the heart of things where it's accessible for people because you're picking up more foot traffic and all that. Yeah,
1: and then the, you be, there's no obviously no perfect science to this because we've launched a touring business for our talent like comedy and music and figuring out things like what's the right ticket price. Yeah, you know we know what our underlying costs are. Yeah, but realistically, do we think we can get this many people at this venue? Yeah. Particularly if we run ads or if it's just organic or whatever, yep. Yep. that's the fun stuff, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, that's the that's the art to the science. You know, there is yeah. science behind it all, but it's also a little bit of an art. And I mean, we've you know, no qualms. You know, the ticket prices in what we um, produce, you know, have have basically doubled in four years, uh, but they were very very undervalued before. Mm. I mean, you could go and get a coffee and a and a muffin for the same price or less than entering into a multi million dollar exhibition because the arts world and the museum world doesn't help itself a lot because it lowers the price so that it's affordable for the lowest common denominator but it does that often on the back of government money or donor money or alike so very few of them are actually self-sufficient right. businesses in their own right they're subsidized heavily but it also puts a connotation of well that's your ticket price hmm. now once we moved Outside of that, the loom, for example, is not seen by the public as going to the museum or the gallery. It's actually seen to be more comparable to a a, a night at the theatre or a light. So it becomes very, very affordable at our our pricing because it's providing hours of entertainment. I mean, we've had you know the average dwell time in there is close to two hours, hmm. but we've had people in there for six or seven hours. So well. It becomes affordable,
1: yeah. Because then it becomes a substitute for going to the movies or the theater or the footy or something like that. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm very curious. Just thinking about the back to the loom. When you go through that process of setting the whole thing up, do you have a whole creative team that that come in here from a technical point of view, or do you, you know, do you just handball that to a team and say, "This is what I want. This is what it has to look like." Blah blah blah, or is it all just left to them? Like what's that process?
0: Yeah, like? no, it's very collaborative. Um, yeah, you know, we have our in-house production and creative teams and um it's a fine balance between how much I interfere or <laughs> not in that process. <laughs> um, certainly I'll outline the vision and we'll do the big picture scoping together, but then I allow them to get on with the you know the detail and then there's various check in points to to make sure we're on track with things or if they hit some speed bumps or some different ideas about what we first thought we'll come back and and regroup on them but but I'm very hands off you know I've got you know a very very talented creative and technical team mm. that I probably could just hand it all over to yeah but I need to do something and feel important, so I've got to get
1: involved. <laughs> so um, one of the big things I wanted to ask you uh, was around, we are talking before about experience-based agencies. You know, every big four agency in the advertising space claims to have an experiential design or, um, you know, user experience agency in, amongst their teams, you know, 200-plus brands often of um, agencies. What is it? What is it that you think agencies can learn from you as an original IP developer that they can impart on brand-related experiences that maybe you've seen in the past or yeah. would like to see more of?
0: Yeah, oh, look, I actually think that's one of the future trends coming up is integrating what we do in the arts cultural world, which is really reimagined that entire industry and taken it on a pathway um, that no one would have envisaged you know outside of what we do you know mm. ten years ago, but you can see that moving into so many different areas now, um, and certainly um, I think we 're seeing more and more of some of the higher end brands starting to integrate very immersive very high tech digital experiences yeah. to engage with the the public, but it all comes down to storytelling and and that's where it falls amiss a little bit because the storytelling and the storytelling, and there's immersive and there's immersive. I mean, my yeah. daughter sat in on a on a Monash University uh, lecturer the other day, and it was billed as a an immersive, uh, um, yeah, you know, lecture, an immersive, um, and, and and it was a PowerPoint presentation. I mean, yeah, it was just it's a buzzword to try and hook people in. Mm. So I think there's a one of the challenges is always going to be how something is marketed to the delivery of the actual experience. And that's where the biggest disconnect is. And I think one of the great things, not being involved in social media too much, is trying to sift through fact from fiction all the time because there's so much false information and so much things to influence you and the way you think out there. But it comes through subtle marketing Mm. of different things. Whereas When you are living and eating and breathing that experience as a visitor, that's when you know whether you've been conned or whether you've been actually delivered on the promise.
1: Yeah. And I think um, you mentioned something earlier as well around how we do short-term really well here in Australia, but maybe not so much long-term. And I think that's the biggest thing I've picked up being in this sort of PR talenty space is that there's a cookie-cutter approach and that... Maybe it's for a fashion and beauty brand. It's like it's a, it's a couple of influencers. They've got a goodies bag. They've got a showing day every quarter of the brands that are with the PR agency and you get this, this and that. But I just wonder like what would it be if this was a if an impermanent experience that the talent, obviously you launch with the talent, but then other people could come and see mm. and learn about the brand. There's so many good brands you work there that have been around for 50, 60 years. They're just so used to the, taking this commercial transactional approach that I just wonder oh, there's so many stories behind these brands. Yeah, look, I think
0: and I think they're starting to be unlocked. Yeah, you know, I've had multiple conversations over in Europe with with some of the big brands, you know, and where they're trying to to go with things. Um and they understand the consumer as well as anybody. And they understand their consumer very, very well. Mm. Um but it is, it's not transactional you know, anymore. You can't just open up a store and put your product in there and, and um, you know, have, have people walk in and, and spend tens of thousands of dollars on it or tens of, you know, dollars or, you know, multiple hundreds of dollars anymore. There's a whole online world, there's a whole experiential world. The demands are, are greater. The trap that they're trying not to fall into, but it's very difficult, is the short term. Because everything's so short term now. Mm. Um, everything's about a quick win and a quick gain, whether it be to get quarterly results up for a listed company or whether it's activations because we need to do something this quarter and <laughs> often forget the long game.
1: Yeah. yeah. That is a big, like just when you talk about the short and long of it, like short, yes, you're going to increase sales volume, but you need to increasingly do long term brand plays because that is what increases your prices. And prevents you from being commoditized in, in yep. a relevant industry. Um, all right, let's f- finish off with some rapid fire questions. Um, now, what do we have? Your routine? What is it? What does it look like at the morning? At the <laughs> moment in the morning and the evening? Um, I've operated for
0: my whole life, apart from the last four months, without an EA. Okay. And my EA is trying to build some routine into my life <laughs> and it's getting totally ignored um, because there isn't one. Um, and I think this is it, – it's a strength but it's also a great frustration because without routine, um, um, it's very hard to be consistent with certain things and – yeah, you know, sort of keeping on top of your own health and fitness, and 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 life and balance and all those sort of things. Um, but without that routine comes sometimes creativity and an ability to just just really do what needs to be done in the moment. Um, and long and short of it, I don't have a routine. Apart from my routine, is a lack of routine.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you consistently have like a coffee or tea in the morning? Oh, look those certainly the coffee's the routine. There's
0: there's okay. got to be a couple of um couple of strong coffees, um, yeah, before eleven o'clock and then don't touch coffee pretty much after that. Um mm-hmm. be quite quite rare. But um I'm that type of person that can't eat the same thing two days in a row, be it breakfast or anything on my after something. You, you have know, to do something different. different. Yeah. And uh you know, uh, I'm not that type of person like a lot of, you know, successful businessmen are that, that wake up at 5 a.m. and, you know, do an hour's exercise tri- or, yeah, or you know punch out their 50Ks on the bike and the, you know, no matter what the weather's like or or that. You know, I've tried to remain very active, but always in different parts of the day, sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes at the end. You know, I mean, I, as a young bike, I used to run at, you know, 10.30 at night, Um Life, life just changes. But we're also, we're a global business, and one of the challenges I have is, um, yeah, you know, when Australia's awake, the rest of the world's asleep. And mm-hmm. as we're about to finish a day, well, you know, the UK and Europe starts waking up, and then you know, early in the morning, the US, especially the East Coast, is, is there only for a short period of time. So your your work day is very, very extended. Mm. and very ad hoc, depending on what's going on. And so you're trying to pinch other things throughout the day. It's not a routine life at all.
1: What's uh, what's your item in the fridge that you keep going back to at the moment? <laughs>
0: um, yeah, look, the only thing that's good for me in the, in the fridge is some um, mineral water. Um, what's but
1: that?
0: <laughs> um, no, nah, look, uh, yeah, we've had to... Um, I've had to rationalise. I put on a few kilos, especially five weeks over uh, overseas. So a lot of the bad things have um, disappeared out of the fridge, and uh, my wife uh, and I are trying to keep on the straight and narrow in the uh, in the fridge. But look, I'm a I'm a sucker for anything that revolves around carbohydrate. So, um, are you, you another like guilty things?
1: pleasure? Like, are you a chocolate guy, or um, savoury? Look, can't have biscuits
0: around. Um, I. I wouldn't have a lot of self control around yeah,
1: good biscuits. Know. We've gone through this <laughs> process recently in the
0: office. Um, I've got zero self control. Ice cream would be the go-to dessert, which is pretty boring. But you know, I'm, um, I, I don't crave uh, other things. I don't eat chocolate as a routine. Mm. The only thing I would routinely have every day would be coffee. The rest is trying to try to sort of mix it up a bit. But um, we're on the wagon at the moment, so uh, there's been no alcohol and and very um, small portions over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Interesting.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to um, maintain somewhat of a health kick before we head away because I know I'm just going to be debaucherous as soon as I get over to Europe. Well, food's such a great pleasure and it's when
0: amazing, you've mate. lived in Europe and Italy and like, you really, I mean, Italians talk about food non-stop hmm. um, and I just come back obviously from time over there eating raw seafood just non-stop. I can't get enough of it um, there but it's easy to get the excess, and a couple of my staff over there, for example, they limit themselves to pasta once a week. Mm. Now we don't know this, you know, as 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 foreigners, we can often think, how do the Italians stay so so you know trim, taut, and terrific when they've got all this pasta on the menu? Well, they don't do what we do, which is go and eat pasta for lunch and dinner and go through the entire menu. They yeah. they really do have a bit of self
1: control around. Yeah, they they pace themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's yep. definitely like a cultural thing we haven't learned here um, Bruce, it's been great having you in here. um Where can people find you on the interwebs? Well, they probably can't find me, but they can find uh the loom at
0: theloom.com dot <laughs> com um and grande experiences I mean we've got experiences all out there around the world um and it's just a matter of um yeah looking on our website to see what's on and, and like or or um Yeah, doing a bit of search on some of our uh, our branded experiences there, but I try and keep a a very low profile um, myself and and not be
1: found. (laughs) (laughs) We'll link all of that, but um, Bruce Peterson, thanks for coming on the show.
0: Thanks for having me on uh, Uncommon.
1: Beauty. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you liked it, do subscribe, and of course, like it on YouTube if you're watching as well. We'd really appreciate that. For audio, if you have not already listening on your podcast app, you can search for it on any good app, including Spotify, Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon Podcasts on YouTube. It's the first one that appears every single time. For behind the scenes, do follow us on Instagram and TikTok. It's at uncommon underscore show. But until next time, thanks for tuning in.